Hello and welcome to A Mighty Blaze Podcast, part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett, author of Herrick's End, Herrick's Lie, and the forthcoming Herrick's Key. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. For this Boston girl, today's guest is truly a legend, not just here in Massachusetts, but everywhere. You know his books, Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, Shutter Island, and if you haven't read the books, you've probably seen the movies. But you might not know that Dennis Lehane was also a staff writer on shows like Boardwalk Empire, Bloodline, and The Wire or that he's currently creating a brand new series for Apple. Dennis visited A Mighty Blaze to talk with fellow author Mark Cecil about his city, his work, and his future plans. And he even graced us with more than one reading from his newest novel, Small Mercies. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to two Bostonians talking books. Mark Cecil, and Dennis Lehane. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of The Thoughtful Bro, live streaming on a mighty blaze, as usual, across Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube all around the world. Thoughtful Bro is here, as you know, every Tuesday at 2 for what makes great books tick and what makes great authors tick. And we are broadcasting on a mighty blaze, which, if you didn't know, is an all-volunteer initiative to help writers reach readers virtually during COVID and now beyond COVID. Um, At A Mighty Blaze, we are never, ever, ever asking for your money. Um, If you want to support us, all you got to do is watch the show, like us, follow us across social media. And if you do want to spend your money, I have an idea for you. You can spend it on fantastic books like this one. Gritty Chronicles of Boston's Dark Criminal Underbelly, written by masters of the genre. Um, Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. Please open up a browser tab, order a few copies of the book for this and all your crime-loving, Boston-loving friends. Um, Dennis, we're so happy to have you here today. I'm just going to give you a quick intro, and then we'll get to the interview. The great Dennis Lehane grew up in Boston, and he has published 14 novels that have been translated into more than 30 languages, many of which have become international bestsellers. Four of his novels, Live by Night, Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, and Shutter Island, have been adapted into films. A fifth, The Drop, was adapted by Lehane himself into a film that starred Tom Hardy my favorite actor, and James Gandolfini in his final role. Um, Lehane was a staff writer at the acclaimed HBO series, The Wire, my favorite show, and also worked as a writer-producer on HBO's Boardwalk Empire. Um, he has adapted three Stephen King novels for the screen, Mr. Mercedes and End of Watch for DirecTV and The Outsider for HBO. And he recently wrote and produced the acclaimed limited series Blackbird for Apple TV+. Plus. Um, I actually think that the Rotten Tomato rating on Blackbird is like 97%. So when we say critically acclaimed, we mean critically acclaimed. Um, his latest book, Small Mercies, is out today. Um, Gillian Flynn called it a, quote, jaw-dropping thriller. And the legend himself, Stephen King, said the book Small Mercies is thought-provoking, engaging, and raging, and can't put it down entertainment. Dennis, welcome to The Thoughtful Bro. Hey, Mark. How are you? Thanks for having me. Of course. 
Thank you for being on here. And Dennis, I got to start by asking you this. Um, you have written 14 books. Um, it's pub day for you. And I always appreciate getting an author on their pub day. Is there something about pub day that's still, even after all this books that you love, that you look forward to? Is there anything that you just never get tired of? No, it's not. Pub day isn't, I don't know. The days, the big days are like um, the first time you see the book in copy edited form, the first time you receive the hardcover. That's that's a huge day. The first time you you, you know you've nailed the first draft, the first time you've, you've finished it, yeah. I mean, those are the big, to me, the big markers. Right. One, the one good thing about Pub Day is it's it's now completely out of my control. I don't stress <laughs> about it anymore. I just, there's a, like the few week, weeks leading up to Pub Day, I get pretty tense because it's like, you know, I'm sending my baby out into the world and what if people say it's ugly? Well, I will say, Dennis, I don't think people are saying it's ugly. I mean, how do you feel? The coverage has been pretty great, I think. The coverage has been great on <laughs> wood. Knock on wood. Um, <laughs> yeah, the coverage has been great. So I, my baby, my wife said that to me last night. She said, I, I think the baby's being treated well. There you go. There you go. And your baby's about to be treated very well over the next 45 minutes. So do not fear. Um, but why don't we start with you telling our audience what is Small Mercies about? Uh, in 1974, uh, the summer of 1974, um, uh, the uh, state decreed that Boston had to desegregate its public schools. And the, and the way they did this, the first um, experiment, if you will, on this was that um, a significant portion of the high school population of South Boston High School, which was 100% white, and a significant portion of the population of Roxbury High School, which was predominantly African-American, we're going to switch. We're going to be forced to bus to the other school. These are both very poor neighborhoods. Um, and uh, they had 90 days to comply. So uh, the reaction in South Boston uh, and then ultimately in neighborhoods across the city as, it, as, it, as the experiment rolled out was ferocious. Um, this is a book in which a mother on the eve of busing goes looking for her daughter who doesn't come home one night. And simultaneously, a young African-American man is found dead, hit by, possibly hit by a subway car. Um, and the two events seem to be interconnected. That's, that's the kind of baseline. It's the elevator pitch. I love it. And it's just got the fattest of fat hooks. This is something you're known for and you always deliver on. It's just sort of, I feel like my life falls out of my hands when I read one of your books. It just Even if I wanted to put it down, I couldn't. Um, but Dennis, this is something everybody always says about you, but it's so warranted that, you know, Boston is your muse and you're so great and Boston is a character in your books and, and all that stuff. But I mean, it is really true. And there's a, a tremendous passage on page 99 that sort of sums up Southie. Um, and I was just wondering if you could read that because I think it's just absolutely sure. brilliant. It's the perspective of a police officer who's from Dorchester, which is right next door to um, South Boston, which is where I grew up. So I never, I never um, claimed to be an expert on South Boston. I'm a, I'm a, these are, this is through Bobby's eyes. He's my police officer. And this is, is his look at South Boston. So um, let's see here. Right. Okay. Um, so he's been driving along. He's, he's pulled into South Boston to interview witnesses. And he says, everyone knows everyone here. They stop one another in the streets to ask after spouses, children, cousins twice removed, 
Come winter, they shovel walks together, join up to push cars out of snowbanks, freely pass around bags of salt and sand for icy sidewalks. Summertimes, they congregate on porches and stoops or cluster in lawn chairs along the sidewalks to shoot the shit, trade the daily newspapers, and listen to Ned Martin call the Sox games on HDH. They drink, drink beer like it's tap water, smoke ciggies as if the pack will self-destruct at midnight, and call to one another across streets, to and from cars, and up at distant windows like impatience is a virtue. They love the church, but aren't real fond of mass. They only like the sermons that scare them. They mistrust any that appeal to their empathy. They all have nicknames. No James can be just a James. It has to be a Jim or a Jimmy or a Jimbo or a JJ or in one case, Tantrum. There's so many Sullivans that calling someone Sully isn't enough. In Bobby's various incursions here over the years, he's met a Sully one, a Sully two, an old Sully, a young Sully, Sully white, Sully tan, two times Sully, Sully the nose, and little Sully, who's fucking huge. <laughs> he's met guys named Zipperhead, Pool Cue, Pot Roast, and Ballsack, son of Sully Tan. He's come across Jugs, Nickelbag, Drano, Pink Eye, who's blind, Legsy, who limps, and Hansy, who's got none. Every guy has a thousand-yard stare. Every woman has an attitude. Every face is whiter than the whitest pink you've ever seen, and then just under the surface, misted with an everlasting Irish pink that sometimes turns to acne and sometimes doesn't. They're the friendliest people he's ever met, until they aren't, at which point they'll run over their own grandmothers to ram your fucking skull through a brick wall. <laughs> Touchdown. <laughs> I mean, I I'm, I'm grew up in Worcester, and like I just, it, the writing, the tone, everything, it's just the best. It's just the best. Um, it's so... Thanks. The, the voice of this book is uh, um, very... Uh, Specific, it's a very specific voice. It's the exact same book that tells the story of Mystic River and that tells the story of the drop. It's the same voice. And it's a guy sitting at a bar telling a story. And it's a really good story. And and he's and he and he's very excited to tell it, but he's reeling it out slowly and he's funny. And that guy has been my narrator three times now. And I love that guy. Whenever he, he, he speaks to me, I love him. And I love it, too, because I know you've said that, like, one thing that you don't write a lot of, but that you sometimes maybe wish you would, is the like, humor and, 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 like, comic novels. I've heard you say that before. But, you know, a passage like that, the humor just really comes through. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a, you know, um, it, it, people don't believe this, but when I read Mystic River out loud, when I used to read it out loud to audiences, they'd find themselves laughing and they'd be confused. And I'd be like, no, it's the voice. It's the voice, man. You know, it's like it's meant to be a little bit wry be the yeah. way yeah i love it man all right so um the boston busing crisis in the 70s um you were a young kid when yeah. that was going on and there is a story about you actually happening to become a part of it or like kind of accidentally driving yeah. through it that sort of changed you a lot can you just quickly tell that story my dad i don't know how he managed to do it he took a he took a wrong turn we used to go right when we'd come over the Broadway Bridge and we'd go right to go into Dorchester, he went straight. I can't remember why. There had to be a reason. But we were immediately swept up into this huge protest that was going down, down Broadway. And we couldn't get out until we reached where uh, West Broadway and East Broadway meet. So it was um, it was terrifying. And what was happening was they were, they were put, I, I don't know, I was nine years old. I'd never heard the term effigy before. I'd never heard that word. And they were hanging effigies of Arthur Garrity, the judge, who, who, you know, um, uh, brought down the ruling 
in um, the case. They were uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, William Taylor, uh, who was uh, head of the Boston Globe. They were hanging them from from street lamps and then lighting them on fire. And it was so medieval. It felt like the villagers at the end of Frankenstein, you know, and they're, they're going to get the monster. Like it was, there was something just, and it was terrifying. And people were screaming. Some people were screaming, you know, perfectly legitimate things like, um, you know, Southie won't go. And, you know, you know, this is, um, uh, tier, you know, down with tyranny and all those things. You know, there was a legitimate discussion about some of that. But there was a lot of, you know, N-words suck and and just, you know, really ugly shit being shouted. And um, and I, I, I couldn't process it. Like, I just mm. couldn't process it. And I think that from that point on, busing became this, um, you know, this real uh, seismic event in my life. Cormac McCarthy has a line in one of his books about there are events in your life that separate you into the before and the after. And, and that, that was that summer to me and that, that winter, because I could never reconcile the fact that people I knew, in some cases, people I loved, were okay with throwing rocks at buses with school kids in it. You know, um, they do what about isms, you know, they'd never say, Oh yeah, it's okay. They'd say, yeah, but what about, you know, and I heard this and I heard that, you know, the N words are doing this when you go into the bathroom at Roxbury high and like all this, what about isms, but nobody would say, Oh my God, we're throwing rocks at school buses with children in them. And, and that, and that was something I just couldn't, I could never get my head around it. And it took me many years as an adult to realize that that was a, a pivotal source of, of real anger inside of me that, that I felt like it's only in retrospect that I realized this, but I felt like that, those events took my childhood. Wow. I, I, I wasn't pointing to like, I had a great parent, I had great parents. I was not abused. I was not, you know, none of that. But, but at nine years old, I stopped being a kid. Now, Dennis, I would say a lot of that anger and a lot of that rawness comes through in this book. And, you know, the book is front and center about race. The setting is race. It's about racism. The characters are all grappling with racism. The event at the core of this book is uh, a book that is just, uh, you know, got racism all over it from every angle. And one thing I want to just observe about that is, you know, we live in this era right now um, that is supercharged on race. I mean, ever since, you know, in the last five years, for all the reasons and all the incidents, you don't need to name them all. But this is just front and center for everybody. And so one of the things I want to ask you about it is like, you don't pull punches on this. I mean, this is like a book full of raw and ugly feelings, raw and ugly language, like yep. the worst language you can imagine. Yep. And I just wanted to ask you, like, in the environment we're in today, like you don't see a lot of that actually. I think people pull back and and so on. I just want to ask you about putting that rawness front and center. You know, we're um, back in 1974. They they um, said the quiet part out loud, and they had no problem with it. No problem with it. And at least the one thing you can say about that is at least you knew where you stood. At least it was honest. What's uglier in today's world, in some ways, is that people are still thinking the quiet part. They're still acting on the quiet part, but they're smart enough to hide it. And, and they, they, they know what the response will be. And so, except for, you know, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and those people, I mean, that's a different deal. But there's a lot of people out there who 
if you were to scratch the right spot, you'd, you'd find the racism and it wouldn't be hard to get to. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, that's, that's something that this book, I just wanted to say, you know what, there was, this is what it was. And, and when people are going to, and I know there's going to be a backlash sooner or later, people are going to come and say, that's not, he's making this up. He's being dramatic. He's being, there's a book, the, the photograph on the cover of this book is by a guy named Eugene Richards. Okay. He took this, the summer 74 uh, or fall of 74, I think he went into uh, South Boston during the busing crisis and he shot a ton of, of photographs. I think mostly for the Globe and Herald, but I'm not, you know, anyway, um, he put it in a book called Dorchester Days. There's a south mm. section of Dorchester Days. He was mostly shooting Dorchester, my neighborhood, actually. And I found this book. Go and look at that book and tell me that any of this is over-dramatized because he gets shots of the graffiti. You know, we're talking about you're walking down a street in Boston in August of 74, and you're passing graffiti that says KKK. Mm. Passing graffiti that says kill all N-words. This was my childhood. So anybody who wants to claim now, oh, it wasn't that bad. Bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like a few years um, younger than you, but I mean, growing up in Worcester, I mean, it just, it, every word rang true to me. I mean, it was it, not like you hear it every day, but it just was, it seemed completely authentic and completely like the, you know, the Worcester that I grew up in too. So, um, and let me ask you just one more question about that race aspect of it. Um, did you feel like now was like a particular time to go front and center with a book about race? Because I know race has always been in your work. You're always have been grappling with this on some level and in some aspect of your stories, but this one, it's right. It's like the point of the book. And did you feel like now was like a, a ripe time for that? Yeah, because it's coming back it's with a vengeance. And not just in America, it's coming back, you know, sort of the playbook of all people who need to keep the poor fighting amongst themselves is to get them fighting over race. It's, mm. it's hands down. Give us a scapegoat. It, whether it's an African-American, whether it's Syrians overseas right now, whatever it is, you know, find, find a way. Bobby has a big riff on it. Whatever you can do to make people remove one level of humanity from the people they're thinking about. It, that's what you do. That's the playbook. And, and that is what's going on right now at a global level because we're seeing these massive demographic shifts in the world. Massive. And, and people aren't reacting real well. And the people in charge who should have some type of morality, I don't believe anybody in politics has morality, but the people who have some decency are actually fanning the flames. Mm. And making sure that everybody, you know, everybody believes that, you know, the, the you name your race is coming for your job, is coming for your culture, is coming for your way of life. Um, and so I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to to show what it was like on the front lines of that, because, you know, that was a really ugly ugly and you can't hide from it moment if it had happened in like if it would been like 1921 tulsa race riot you can hide from it because there's no footage but you can't hide from what happened during boston in boston there's too much photographic and video evidence and that famous photo of the guy with the american flag i mean it's one of the most famous photos in american history yeah yeah um so 
So um, let's talk about Mary Pat, your main character. Um, I think that um, a lot of kind of, obviously she's the main character, so the story flows through her, but also like a lot of, I think what, you, what you're trying to say and get at about race flows through her and mm -hmm. the way that she sort of doesn't think of herself as a racist. And yet um, we see uh, how the story plays out and you see that indeed there's a lot of deep-seated stuff in her. And I guess I just want you to paint a thumbnail sketch of who Mary Pat is, but then also tell me this. As a writer, if you're going to spend you know, a year, two years writing a book about a main character, there has to be something in that main character that you find profoundly compelling because you're going to wake up every day and you're going to yeah. think about that person. What is it about Mary Pat that drew you to her and made you want to explore her for, you know, the whole time writing this book? Well, Bobby has a great line about her. Nobody could told her, she, uh, nobody ever told this woman she could stop. Nobody ever told this woman she could feel. Nobody ever let this woman have, have, um, you know, the safety of her emotions, if you will. Right. So I, I, I knew a lot of these women growing up, particularly like project moms in Dorchester and in Southie. And they were tough as nails, man. And they could go toe to toe with a lot of guys. They might not win the fight, but they they'd make you pay. And I, I thought I've never seen that character before. And I, what would that woman be like if she was unleashed in the summer of 74 with nothing left to lose? What would that be like? And there's a lot about Mary Pat that is paradox. I think all people are paradoxes. So she is unquestioningly a racist. She is a racist, alcoholic, chain-smoking disaster in so many ways. Yet she is also, she has been a victim herself of, of, um, of, of abuse. Um, you know, had an abusive father, had an abusive mother, had abusive siblings. Uh, she has been groomed to fight since she was six years old, I think, is her first, her first memory, actually, of her first fight is like three. Um, and, and she is coming to a point where she is coming to grips with the fact that her life has not turned out well at all. And part of that may be because of her. Her husband has left her. And the reason he's left her, and she doesn't understand it, is because of her hate. And she's like, what? I, you know, what? I don't hate. Like, you know. Her son has OD'd after coming back from Vietnam. Her daughter is missing and the neighborhood won't help her. And yet she can't go to the police because it would have been a death sentence to go to the police back then in South Boston. And so, um, so, so what is she to do? So she has two journeys. One is very heroic, which is I'm gonna take on everybody. I'm going straight through until I get justice which is what she does and, and watch out and better not get in her way. And I love that about her. On the other side, she has a very unheroic journey, which is to come to terms with the fact that what she has passed down to her children is exactly what was passed down to her, which is racism, which is hate, which is, you know, Martin Luther King's, you know, great concept that the, the final victim of racism will be the racist. Mm. And, and that's, what this, you know, when she finally has a moment where she she attempts to explain herself to an African-American family, it does not go well. And I'm like, I'm not doing any hugging and learning in this book. This is a book about the real raw times and how people would have thought and how Mary Pat would have thought. And in the end, as far as she gets up the up the up the field, if you will, she's never going to be to the point where she's like, Oh wow, I'm fully enlightened. 
on matters of race. That's 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 bullshit. And I I I loathe that kind of writing, to be honest with you. But she does make incremental steps. Is hope, if you will. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about a pitch for your book. I mean, if that character arc, inner and outer, doesn't compel somebody to read this book, I don't know what will. Um, Dennis, you said that you like to write about outsiders. You have a hard time writing about insiders. How is Mary Pat an outsider? What is she outside of? She's outside of everything, man. I mean, she's a project mom. She's a single mom living in a housing project. Her ga- The book starts with her gas being shut off. Because she's not she's behind on the bills. So she's she's not inside anything. She's all the way out. And but what she has, and I, I agree, you know, David Mammoth said this once in a book I used to teach, which is um, in the in the final stages of a of a true of a true hero story, the hero should have nothing but their will. And that's Mary Pat, man. She's just got will. She's like, I am going to find out what happened. And when she finds out how bad it is, she's like, I am going to bring every single person I can to some type of street justice. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, shit, I was rooting for her. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, what a force, a force of nature, this woman. Um, let's talk about class. I mean, class and race are obviously deeply intertwined. You write so well about class and i think that this busing crisis was just such a great way to to, or a great lens to look at it through um you know you talk about how the judge lived in wellesley um you know all the vets are from southie and like you know the poor neighborhoods and like you know the 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 rich people out in the suburbs they don't have to send their kids to war they don't have to have their kids bust anywhere um they can they can dodge the draft all that and it's funny you know all morning because of this book i've been re-listening to a fortunate son by credence clearwater um i mean i just love that song but after like coming right out of reading your book and just listening to like it ain't me it ain't me i ain't no senator's son i mean it just fit perfectly yeah yeah um so go ahead no, I was going to say, and now they've 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 even got. I mean, what w- what what happens in this book is that you know there's 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 two major issues going on besides this incredible you know hunt uh, that Mary Pat's on, is the desegregation of the Boston public schools had to happen and it had to happen right then. There is no, the justice had been delayed for way too long, so um, there is no question that it had to happen. The issue of busing is another issue. And the question is the method by which it happened and the selectiveness of it, of choosing only the urban poor, really, to go after for this social experiment. And poor Garrity had his, had his hands tied. He went into this case thinking he was making a decision ultimately for the counties. So it would have been Suffolk County, it would have been Middlesex County, it would have been all the areas around Boston, the ring around Boston, it would have been everything. And at the last second, he was told, no, that's not going to happen. This is only affecting the city. This mm-hmm. only affects right the center of the city. So all the sort of well-meaning, um, good-natured limousine liberals who lived in their all-white towns, um, you know, they, they pulled out. And it was left to the city to deal with this. And, you know, my father was not a racist, but my father was somebody who said, wait, you know, he was on the side of, of wait a second, where are our rights here? Where's our vote here? You know, and um, how come it doesn't affect anybody else? Like, and he remembered 
that I grew up in Dorchester. Dorchester is right on the ocean, but you'd never know it because in the 1950s or early 60s, my dates are a little off, they, they just cut the Southeast Expressway straight through Dorchester. They weren't sending it through Wellesley. They weren't sending it through Brookline. They weren't sending it through Newton. They were sending it through the city. And so not in my backyard, if you, if you think that's anything but a racist policy, you're, you're dreaming. Not in my backyard means no subway systems, no bus lines, no poor people, no brown people. That's exactly what NIMBY means. And there are a lot of supposed progressive liberal suburbs where NIMBY is the order of the day. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. And the, the busing solution to this policy issue of desegregation, it really not only failed, but it backfired. I mean, because you had a lot of people who just dropped out of school, which created more problems, wouldn't well, you say? Southie, Southie won't go, man. It's a boycott of the schools. And that boycott went on for years after this book. This book ends on the first day of the boycott. And... And what did that do? It created a generation of hopeless high school dropouts um, who ultimately, uh, you know, they drifted into drugs. They drifted into petty crime. They drifted into working for the Winter Hill Gang. They drifted into, you know, it it was not good. It was just a very bad self-destructive response to um, a necessity that was handled poorly, is how I put it. And if this had been countywide, I believe that we would have been a shining beacon for the rest of the country. This is one of those historical misses where you just go, my God, if this had been everybody, if this had affected Arlington and Cambridge and, you know, all of these areas. And it had all been everybody had just been going to the it would have been I think it would have been wonderful. Yeah. And I think I think ultimately, yeah, there would have been look, there were people in South Boston, there were people all over the city who were virulently racist. And that's what happened. That's what they ripped the can right off, you know, top right off that can. Not just in Southie either, in Charlestown, Jamaica Plain, Hyde Park, Dorchester, where I lived, you know, all of it. But there was also, if this, if that racism had been part of a larger pot that everybody was involved in, then I think it just would have been different. I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but 
that that to me was the the worst aspect of this the missed opportunity to do something really important on race and really important on desegregation that would have again maybe set us up as a model for the rest of the country that would have been cool as opposed to a poster child for east coast racism which is what we became wow so dennis if you could there's a there's a great passage on um kind of the, the mindset of some of the people in the book and the poor people in the book and how they how they how they feel left out um it's on page 18 it's a brief passage but i thought again here you were just just crushing it so um read that for us sure i'm just gonna give a tiny bit of context i'm going a little slightly early this is mary pat at a bar she's talking to somebody and she's talking to a woman and the woman who goes on a rant about her life finishes with, but what are you going to do? Right? Right, Mary Pat says, what are you going to do? It's a refrain they all hold dear. It goes alongside, it is what it is, and shit happens. They aren't poor because they don't try hard, don't work hard, aren't preserving the better things. Mary Pat can look at almost anyone she's ever known um, in Commonwealth Housing Project in particular or Southie in general and find nothing but strivers, ball busters, people who treat 10-ton burdens like they weigh the same as a golf ball, people who go to work day in, day out and give their ungrateful prick bosses 10 hours of work every single eight-hour day. They aren't poor because they slack off. That's for fucking sure. They're poor because there's a limited amount of good luck in this world, and they've never been given any. If it doesn't fall from the sky and land on you, doesn't find you when it wakes up every morning and goes looking for someone to attach itself to, there isn't a damn thing you can do. There are way more people in the world than there is luck. So you're either in the right place at the right time, at the very second luck shows up for once and never more, or you aren't. In which case, shit happens. It is what it is. What are you going to do? All right. So I want to take an absolutely world-class passage like that and pivot into a different part of the discussion, which is how you have migrated over your career more into the film industry. Mm -hmm. um, and you've had great success there. Um, Blackbird was just totally rapturously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, so one of the questions I want to ask you is just sort of like, kind of, what are the things that the two mediums can do that the other can't? And so case in point, you know, if you're writing Blackbird, you can't put in a passage like that or the passage that we heard earlier. Um, you can't put in this extended, deep, rhythmic um, set yeah. of observations. Um, you know, I'm just curious how you feel about like, you know, what can the screen do that books can't? What can books do that the screen can't? Oh, it's easy. I mean, that's a perfect example. Or, or like my favorite passage in this book is a passage where Mary Pat reflects on her family history and how she became such a bruiser and how she became so tough. And, and that passage that's never showing up. In a, in, even if I do it as a limited TV series and I got 10 hours, it's not showing up. It's not going to be there. So um, it, the internal monologue is what you lose from uh, when you translate a book, you, you lose the authorial voice, you lose the literary aspect of it. Um, what you gain what you gain is is a lot of economy and 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 being able to tell the story through image. Um, you can do a lot. I was just on a conversation with my potential costume designer for my next show yesterday, and we talked so much about like the specifics of clothing and what it will tell you right off the bat about the characters immediately. So you do a lot of stuff like that 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 will will convey 
you know the similar things, but they're they are different beasts. You you read and write fiction for a totally different reason than you read or write TV. Um, and is it true that you are sort of slowly making a move to where you're only going to be doing TV and there might actually, did I hear this right, not be another Dennis Lehane book? What there won't be is a Dennis Lehane book because I have to write it. So I'm now off contract for the first time in 25 years. Oh, my God. I don't have a contract. And um, books have gotten exponentially harder and harder for me to write. I don't know why. I mean, I really don't, um, but they just did. And, and I don't like um, being in a room all alone. You know, I'm sick of that, man. I, I never liked it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. um, it demands more of my focus uh, and psychological um, and emotional focus than, than I'm willing to give right now. So if this is my last book, I'm good with it. I really am. It's a great mic drop. I'm, I'm fine. But if it's not, I'm going to be the first one to be like, yeah, I got a great idea. I'm going to write it. But I'm not writing for anybody. I'm not because yeah. I have to make my deadline. I have to make sure that, you know, my publisher gets this book by December 12th, whatever it is. None of that. I'm just going to write. It's a luxury. And I'm going to take advantage of it and, and continue to do my TV stuff, which to me is great because it's social and I like people. Yeah, <laughs> like a lot of authors, you know, like I don't look like the, the naked mole rat when I come out of the, you know, when I come out of my office, like, oh, I don't know, I'm gonna jump right back in. Uh, I'm much more, you know, hey, how's it going? What's up? You know, like I want to, I want to have fun. So, yeah, awesome. All right, so we're getting near the end here. Um, I see some questions already from the audience. That's great, folks. Do you have any more questions for Dennis? Just pop them in the chat, and we will ask. Um, Dennis, I want to talk really quickly sort of lightning round style about the wire and about Stephen King and just ask you to answer kind of a quick question on, on both of them. I mean, sure. the wire, the wire is just of, you know, it's up there with the Sopranos up there with the great television shows of all time, for sure. Right. Um, tell us something about the wire that made the wire, the phenomenon that it was that people might not think of right off the top. Like what is something you sometimes think about where you'd fill in the blank, like, you know what the key to that show really was? It no. was blank. Uh, the opposite. I would be the opposite. I am, I am baffled by the success <laughs> of The Wire because The Wire was not successful until it was really winding down, until it was mm. the season. And they, this was DVDs. This was the DVDs days. The DVDs were released in Europe, and there was a huge response to it, and it swung back to the United States. And so there was nothing about The Wire that, I mean, even for me, and I, I was like, damn, Dave, you're going there. Like David like would David did nothing to concede to the idea of audience expectation or audience entertainment. David and Ed Burns, David Simon and Ed Burns. And we'd just be like, All right, you guys want to go there, we'll go with you, you know, like but we'll take the hill. But um, so we, it was the most anti-commercial project I've ever been involved in. Wow. And, and it was because of that, I think, that it was ultimately successful because it, it but it was not successful in its time. It, mm -hmm. I mean, in its moment, it wasn't its time, but it wasn't in its moment. And we were allowed to just, you know, talk about the inmates being in charge of the asylum. HBO just left us alone. You know, we weren't getting any viewers for them. We weren't making any money for them as long as we didn't ask for HD. I remember that was an issue at the time. We were, we were left alone. And that was a wonderful way and I, I, a wonderful way to do something. And I think there's something to be said for that in any art, 
that if you do it from a pure place, a truly pure place, and you're not thinking remotely about what the response is going to be, how much money you're going to make, any of it, you go for broke like that. You can produce some really great stuff. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk about Stephen King for a second. You've adapted three of his books for the screen. Um, Tell us something about Stephen King that you as a writer notice about Stephen King that like might explain his longevity, his success. What is it about him as a, because he sort of gets mixed reviews. Like on the one hand, people just love him on the other time. Sometimes, you know, he's not as critically praised, although his critical reputation is growing a lot now. But, but what is the thing about Stephen King that impresses you as a writer? He, he immediately with incredible confidence pulls you into a story and there's nobody and I can think of who can successfully take you from page one right Mm -hmm. into the world like right in like I can still quote the first line of the shining so this has been going on for a long time and and you you know when we were doing the outsider it was the last Stephen King thing I worked on Mm -hmm. yeah I mean page one I was like god damn like how do you do this like I'm I'm still clearing my throat by chapter three. And you got me like in, like all in. I think that, and then there's a richness to his characters. I think that's very undervalued that, you know, as a writer, you know, Stephen King way before the critics caught up, Stephen King wrote the single greatest book about what it is to be a writer. And that's The Shining. Way before the critics caught up to that. At a metaphorical level, at a character level, what that book was doing, besides being the scariest book ever written, was was saying some extremely serious things about and profound things about what it is to be a writer and what it is to be an alcoholic and what it is. about. There's a lot of stuff in that book. And, you know, then you look at like you come down to it and, you you know, a thousand pages and you read it in like a sitting. I mean, it's just crazy. Like it's and, and it's not like in the the cheap page turner ways. I mean it in the there's such a richness to it, and there's such a again, the confidence of how he takes you by the hand as a reader and leads you into that world is I I don't think there's anybody in his, you know, in his zip code as a writer. Amazing. And I know our producer on the show today, Jenna Blum, uh, is a massive Stephen King fan. And I think The Shining is maybe her favorite book. So I know that she is excited about everything you're saying right now. Um, One more question from me before we go to audience questions. Um, You have spent some time teaching in your career. Um, I've heard you say you made a great comment once that, um, you know, what is good writing? What is bad writing? Somebody asked you and you said, good writing is confident writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, good writing whispers and bad writing shouts. And I, I thought that was just brilliant and um, happy to hear you expound on that. But I guess the one question I really want to know is in all your time dealing with both students and then also probably younger writers in your, you know, now you're working in teams, you probably get younger writers who come through. Give me like the one or two qualities that you see in writers who truly make it like the difference between a writer who's kind of going to burn out not quite get there and a writer who you think can kind of sense might have a long career. Well, you got to start with talent. There has to be talent there. I mean, they just, you know, I'm sorry, but that's the one thing a lot of people are like, you know, look, man, it's kind of like if, if you're not, if, if nobody has ever told you you're, you're funny, don't be a comedian. Like, just don't like, and if nobody's ever told you 
wow, you really write beautifully or you really articulate beautifully, you might want to think about not being a writer. Like it's, I'm sorry, it's a baseline. There has to be a baseline. After you get past that baseline, then it comes down to will, depersonalizing, getting your ego out of the way. It's not about you. It's nothing to do with you. It's about you trying, choosing this thing to express ideas you have. So um, the writers that I see who truly make it um, ask questions, not like, how do I get published? How do I get a, uh, my script to somebody? They ask, how do I get good? That's a big one. That's very quantitative. Like that tells me a lot about somebody. If mm. there's, hey, how do I get good? Who do I, who should I read? Who should I watch? Who should, I, whatever, you know? The other thing is, is um, this, this is a brutal, this is a brutal thing to do and a brutal thing to learn. And if you personalize your work, if you are truly taking it, you know, personally, when somebody doesn't like your work or it doesn't, it's not successful or whatever, then you are wasting everybody's time. You truly are. Like, check your ego at the door. Realize that this takes eight to ten years to learn, and 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 be fearless about it. Just just manage the. You're going to be afraid, but manage it. So, the one thing that I do remember, and I see it, I always see it in other writers who I go, oh, you you got a shot. Is when I was a student. They all said it about me. All my teachers said it about me. They said I was a dream student because I never took it personally. I just be like, oh, that doesn't work. Well, then fuck it. Out that goes. And and then now, let me try it again. Let me try it again. Let me try it again. And the same, I took that same attitude when I started working on TV shows and I took it in. I would just pitch all day long. I remember somebody I worked with once saying, doesn't your arm get tired? Like I just throw ideas all day long. And no matter how many times the showrunner was like, no, 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 no. I'm like, look, the percentage is I'm getting one in, you know, sooner or later. So I just keep throwing and throwing. That's depersonalizing it. You yeah. depersonalize it and you get your ego out of the way. It's not about you. It's about the work. I heard you tell a great story in another interview where you were talking about a writer's room and you were talking about kind of being able to see the difference between somebody who's got a problem with the, some feedback they're getting. Are they fighting for themselves or are they fighting for the story? Like mm -hmm. that, that's the dividing line. That's completely the dividing line. And I do see my writers, I do like to do this with my writers a lot. And I think it's good for them to see me do this. I'll be like pitching an idea. I'm the, I'm, I'm the boss. And I'll be pitching an idea and then I'll just go, well, that's dumb as shit. Where did I come? Why did nobody stop me? Like, where did I come up with that one? And they'll be like, oh, oh, oh that's cool. You know, like, or like, we'll card something. And then all of a sudden I'll be looking at the board and I'll be like, who came up with that idea? And they'll be like, you did. And I'll be like, what was I drinking that day? Like, what happened? And they seem to see that so that they can go, it's not precious. It's not. And nothing will beat it out of you, beat precious out of you, like writing for TV. Yeah. Because you have to write for production a lot. And writing for, for production means we can't we can't shoot tonight. You gotta you gotta change this to a day shot. But it's all about being at night. Yeah, no, it's still gotta be day. And production doesn't care about your your little ego. Production's like, we're running out of money, we're out of time, we lost the actor, and you got to redo the entire thing. And so my, I used to work with a guy, David Manson, used to say, ultimately, every scene becomes interior kitchen day. Because <laughs> it's the easiest scene to shoot. And <laughs> so. That's funny, man. That's funny, man. You wait long enough. It'll just be interior kitchen day. Um, all right. 
let's just take before we wrap let's take a couple questions from the audience that will pop up on screen here all right um what this is an audience question what does small mercies have to say to us in a time of political polarization and as you say less overt but powerful racism oh just well you gotta read the book damn it you know come on pony up you gotta find out what it says um no it's look i believe um you know bobby talks about how his parents felt about racism which i feel is very one you know they were contrarian and then it just it just um it insulted them on an intellectual level on a base level they didn't believe that any race was better than anybody else they just believe we're all the same stupid assholes and and that's kind of how i feel you know that's and that's the problem with this with this i don't know this people are trying to aspire to something that they're not and they're destroying the world to do it mm -hmm. and and I, I just feel like, can we all just admit we're idiots? We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're talking about half the time. We're just kind of all fumbling along in the dark. And, and move on and protect your own and leave everybody else alone. Like, I, you know, that's yep. like. Inspiring answer in its way, actually, that we're all just it is dumb. <laughs> we're all, all dumb fucking idiots. Yeah, we're all um, dumb idiots. <laughs> All right, let's take one or two more real quick. Um, what's your favorite Clint Eastwood story you've never told anybody? Oh no, you don't. I don't. You guys are crazy. Why would I tell a story about Clint Eastwood that I've never told? Um, I would never do that. Then, then, then Clint would be upset. Um, <laughs> no, I know some very funny Clint Eastwood stories, but I would say, um, I do remember we had this weird moment. I'll give you one weird moment. We ended up in this in this club, and I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why these women showed up and they were like dressed like Playboy bunnies. Like it was really bizarre. And they sat in our booth and Clint looked at me and he just said, your mom could see you now. And I, <laughs> that's a good line. That's a good line. And I don't, I still don't remember what that was connected to, why they were doing that. But if your mom could see you now, that was a good one. And I can just hear Clint Eastwood say that line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, let's take one last question, and then we'll wrap. Um, do you have any especially? Do you have an especially strong fan base in Boston, and what kind of feedback do you get from Bean Town? Um, I do have an especially strong fan base in Boston. At least I did until I wrote this book. Um, I, <laughs> I do. So it's wonderful. It's it's great. No, I think here's the deal. I think for the most part, I've always said this about writing um, Boston books. Yeah, Boston can be a spiky place. And, but I write warts and all, which is, I, I think I'm allowed as an insider, I'm given a, a, a path as a sort of Bostonian that uh, I get a pass because I don't just show, like in this book, I'm not just showing the racism. I'm not just showing that. I'm not saying everybody from Southeast are racist. Everybody's from Dorchester is racist. That's hardly what I'm saying. I'm saying it's there and it's very prevalent and obviously in this book, but but there were also other things going on in that, that there was a there was a a a, a rights issue, certainly that people felt uh, again, like my father. Um, and I knew plenty of people who were against busing, who were not racist, who would never use the N word, who were never virulent against African-Americans coming into their neighborhoods. It's just I knew plenty who were, you know, so it's showing, I think, warts and all showing both every side of this issue as much as I can and not blinking and not looking away from the shit that makes it look really ugly because it was really ugly. Um, but also looking at 
you know, the Bobbies of the world and the, the people who were Ken Fenn is is a perfect example. Ken Fenn is is Mary Pat's ex-husband, leaves leaves her because of her hate, you know, and walks across the bridge and goes gets out. And that's a that's um th those are people who were there too, you know. There's 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 good and bad in all of us. Great place to wrap. I want to ask you one final question about this, Dennis, which is that, you know, just taking a step back and looking at your whole career, your whole body of work, and this book certainly would fit into this. Um, there is something that people come to expect from Dennis Lehane, and it's tied to what you were just saying. There is a warts and all aspect. I mean, the word unsentimental is a word that is often used to describe your work. Um, you don't pull punches. It's raw. It's gritty. It's dark. My question for you to wrap the interview is this. Where do you see spots of light? Where do you see hope in your world? Oh, I see lots of it. I, I uh, hope is in, in in every single book I write. I think the best line in this book is the best, certainly for me, the line where I was like, "That's it," is you know, it's Bobby says it. Bobby's the police officer. He says, "You know, it occurred to him that the opposite of love is not hate. I mean, sorry, the opposite of hate is not love. It's hope." Because hate takes a lifetime to build, but hope can come sliding around the corner when you least expect it. And, and that's very much, this book is very much about hope. It's, you know, the, the final scenes are about people coming together from, from various aspects of the, of the city. And, and um, there, is, there is hope. It's just, it's, it has to push up through a lot of dark and a lot of noise. Yep. Yes, indeed it does. Folks, this book is a small masterpiece. It is, um, as you heard from those two sections, I mean, those are the two sections that I think Dennis read. I will say without reservation, those are two of the finest passages I've read in years. Um, and the book is just full of stuff like that. It's full of everything you'd want from Dennis Lehane. And by the way, it's just a great freaking like page turning rip roaring story as well. So, um, Dennis, it has been an incredible honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, for, you guys, for having me. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tricia Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My adventure fantasy novels, Herrick's End and Herrick's Lie, books one and two of the Neath trilogy, are available now if you want to check them out. Tune in next time for Season 9, Episode 8, featuring Pam Jenoff. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Mm -hmm.